What is up, Brick Stackers? Welcome back to a brand new episode of Stacking the Bricks. As always, I'm your host, Alex Hellman, and this week, you're going on a journey behind the scenes of the processes, tools, decisions, and more that went into the successful self-publishing launch of the Tiny MBA. I recently joined my friend Jonathan Stark on his podcast, Ditching Hourly, where he typically talks about the business strategies and best practices for helping freelancers and consultants escape the perils of hourly billing. We talked about that world of business quite a bit, including how people often copy the wrong parts of the successes that they've seen in other people's businesses. But as a self-published digital author himself, Jonathan also wanted to grill me on exactly how we launched the Tiny MBA and have sold thousands of copies without a publishing deal and without boxes of books sitting in my basement. So I decided to indulge him. On this episode, you're going to hear my answers to Jonathan's questions about why we decided to make the Tiny MBA a physical printed book in the first place, how and why we picked our printing and distribution partner and why it's not Amazon, And then Jonathan and I riffed on my new secret weapon for building pre-launch momentum and how I translated that momentum into a 90% conversion rate and some of the fastest sales I've ever seen. But one of my favorite moments was when I learned that Jonathan went to music school and the comparison that he draws in the first few moments of this episode between learning both business and music through style practices truly blew my mind and still has me thinking about it weeks later. So make sure you pay close attention to that. I'm excited to see Jonathan ship his first paperback book in the future, and if you're inspired to consider self-publishing a print book, I hope the stories and suggestions in this episode help you too. With that, let's get into my conversation with Jonathan Stark from the Ditching Hourly Podcast. Ready? Here we go. I feel like we're kind of at the cowpaths stage of creating a business on the internet where there is not like there's a highway system and there's well-trodden pathways. So people have a tendency to, to copy the wrong things from businesses that are fundamentally different. And that's it's such a good way to put it. I totally agree. Yeah. So, so when you start to have anecdotes and piling up on top of each other and like, okay, here are the, the common practices that kind of work in this new kind of business. Like I went to music school and it reminds me of that. I had one teacher I think it was an arranging, yeah, an arranging teacher who was saying, you know, we don't teach you rules here at Berkeley. We teach you style practices. So we can't say that what you're doing is right or wrong unless you're saying you're trying to sound like John Coltrane. If you're trying to sound like John Coltrane, you have to do this and that and the other, or you're not going to sound like him. Or if you want to sound like country or you want to sound like bebop or jazz or whatever, like there are style practices. There are no rules but there are style practices. So if you're going to build a business that's whatever these new, like make money online internet businesses, they're going to be style practices that aren't going to guarantee success. But if you violate them, if you copy the wrong business and you're trying to create a country song and sound like John Coltrane, that's, (laughs) that's probably not going to work. The other piece to that is, is you may not have any advantages that put you on a path to sound like John Coltrane. Meanwhile, you do have advantages to sound like, either another artist or forget the other artists just sound like the best version of you. 
And mm-hmm. I feel like that's a, a common theme here, too, is people are so busy trying to copy what other people do without really knowing what's going on under the hood yeah. instead of evaluating whatever assets or advantages or strengths they have and going, let me use every single advantage I've got. That's like one of the earliest lessons in 30 by 500, which is our flagship course, which is we're not here to teach you the only way to start a business, but we're teaching you how to examine the advantages that you already have pick the ones that are most valuable at the starting line, and then for the ones you don't have, how to build them along the way so that when you get a few steps ahead, you're not looking around going, well, shoot, where's that tool? And you realize, I can't get it. Like, I can maybe buy attention through ads, but that's not the same as earned attention through content or education or a newsletter and things like that. So, mm. yeah, I think it's, it's, it's those two things. It's evaluate the advantages that you have and then build the ones that you don't. That's, that's the theme. Mm. Cool. That's, so that was 30 by 500, but let's switch to the book. So who is the best reader for the book? Who's the ideal reader? The first one is the person who's broadly interested in business. Maybe they want to start a business of their own, but from the outside, it feels really big and daunting and scary. Mm-hmm. And the second person is the person who has gotten over that fear and is literally somewhere near day one, maybe in the first few days, weeks, or months of having started a business. And then the third, and this is maybe the most surprising, especially after you've heard me say those first two, is the person who's got a business off the ground and things are humming along and they want to return to first principles. And that's what you were just talking about with your music instructor, where, you know, those the sort of core practices or first principles is a way that I've heard it described as well, which is it doesn't matter how experienced you are, you're going to run into challenges. Problems don't go away in business or life for that matter. You just trade up. You get new problems. (laughs) And I think the more complicated problems get, the more people attend to abandon first principles. And so the third audience is experienced entrepreneurs who want to return to roots and go, how did I get here again? And what have I maybe forgotten along the way that I would like to return to and maybe evaluate the current situation, either for opportunities or problem solve. The book is weird because most of the lessons aren't so much lessons as prompts or questions or examples or very short parables to get you thinking. So my goal with the book is not to give you an answer. It's to give you better questions to come up with your own better answers. Right. And that was actually my next question, which was the the format of the book is very unusual. It's kind of like a collection of Zen cones or something. But it, I think you put it perfectly. It's kind of like prompts and anecdotes and uh, insights. And I mean, you could probably I think I read the whole thing in, a, in an hour. You know, it's it's yeah, it's physically small. It's cute. It's like illustrated. It's it's kind of fun, you know, and it's it's not intimidating, but it's still it really make it really makes you think i mean of course i can only speak for myself but like for me a lot of the lessons are like oh that's a good way to put that like i know that's true but that's a good way to put it you know to hear it makes you think is like the highest compliment that i can hear about this book so thank you for saying it but ultimately like that's the goal is i want people who have kind of gotten into a rut with their thinking where they're not challenging their own thinking at all and i could tell you the thing i know i've got a decade of experience telling people things that they don't listen to in the first place so instead <laughs> i try to get people to so to come to, to come to the conclusion on their own right. or to observe a conclusion i came to and go oh okay so yeah i mean the 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 other 
comparison besides the Zen cones, which some folks have said is folks and you being in the, from the music world, I didn't know that about you, by the way. You're probably familiar with Brian Eno, the electronic oh, yeah. music producer. Yeah, his so card deck, yeah. Yeah, so Brian Eno's card deck of the Oblique Strategies was designed not, I mean, A, it's a deck of cards instead of a book, which frankly, the tiny MBA could be as well, but I don't know that business people would buy a deck of cards. <laughs> that was an intentional choice. But the Oblique Strategies does a similar thing where it's designed to spark creativity. You can't tell someone, go be creative or right. go be creative in this particular direction. That's just not how creativity works. You have to kind of prime the, the, the gears in a certain way. And so Brian Eno did that with prompts that are designed to, I think, spark a combination of lateral thinking or changed perspective and things like that. And so I feel like the tiny MBA sits somewhere between the way Derek Sivers writes his very short essay books. Yeah, I was and, say Derek Sivers. You remind me. And, it reminds me of Derek too. Yeah. Yeah, and and Brian Eno's oblique strategies. The other thing about this is like I don't think if I sat down to write this book, I could have written this book. This book grew out of a thread on Twitter that started as a challenge to write down essentially 100 lessons, observations, and and perspectives about a theme. And the theme that I picked was building businesses that are built to last. And the response to those 100 tweets gave me the sort of clue, both writing those tweets in public and seeing the response to it, but then also the endured response to those tweets made me think with the right packaging and with some guidance and framing, you know, the right forward, the right preface, some additional supplemental recommended reading, and ultimately the direction of you don't have to read the whole Twitter thread in order for one of the tweets to be valuable to you. If I can put that in book form so you can thumb through it, grab a page or a couple of pages. And I've been hearing from folks that say, like, I'd open to a random page and the lesson happened to be really relevant to a (laughs) problem I was dealing with today. And I was like, it's kind of like a magic eight ball in that way. It doesn't always work, but when it does, it feels really cool. So, yeah, I don't know if this format is replicable without going all the way back to the beginning of the process, which is to have a pretty clear idea of the kinds of challenges and problems that I've seen within our audience and then use the constraints of Twitter to force me to sort of narrow my framing to even get an idea that maybe was just, you know, longer than 280 characters. It forced me to get it even more concise, even more clear and even more specific. Mm -hmm. And then that combined with a sort of public feedback loop might generate a similar thing that could be turned into a book down the road, or maybe the next one does need to be a deck of cards or some other format. But this kind of follows the 30 by 500 methodology, which is the format comes last. It's all about knowing who it's for and and knowing enough about them that you can show up for them and help them. <laughs> yeah. That's the, that was built into this book before it was even a book. Right. So how conscious were you, if at all, when you gave yourself that challenge or did someone give you that challenge? Like what was going through your mind when you, when you challenged it was, yourself? I think the interesting thing that I, that I don't know, and I'm, I'm curious to explore in the future is, is the environment. If we treat it almost like gardening, right? You can't make plants grow, but you can create the environment for them to grow Yeah. to take a look back and go, what were the elements of that challenge of the environment that allowed, allowed that challenge to happen? And can I present that to somebody else and have it, turn into something that can then be packaged either again as a book or something else. It doesn't need to be a book. It's a, it's a fun thought experiment and it, you know, it fits my own interests as a design thinker too, to unpack why something happened in the first place and say, 
well, is that something that we can learn things from? Or is if it's a thing we want to happen, what were the elements that allowed it to happen again? That's mm. actually like there's a meta lesson in the book about that. Um, not a meta lesson, there's an explicit lesson in the book about that, where it says, you know, if something is working in the business, step back and take the time to evaluate why it's working and then make sure that the systems that are in place ensure that the thing that's working keeps working because so many problems that happen in business aren't because anything went wrong, but because something that was working was no longer being tended to. Mm, Interesting. Just entropy. Entropy is a force that we actually, we talk about in sort of the stacking the bricks universe a lot. And that Amy has one of my favorite lines is of all the things she's ever written is that starting a business is like picking a fight with entropy. (laughs) It it will perpetually be trying to pull itself apart. And your job is to find the cohesiveness (laughs) and build the systems that work to counter the entropy. And anyone who's been in business knows exactly what I'm talking about. And anyone who has not been in business thinks that this might think that this sounds a little bit crazy, but the, the, this kind of goes back to what I was saying before is like, it's the entire world is just problems. And once you learn to look at it that way and don't treat problems as the worst thing in your day, but as the opportunity to make something better, whether mm-hmm. it's for your customers, your clients, or in your own business or in your own life, that sort of inversion is, is a, is a worldview change. And it's yeah. not an easy one, but it's a critical one. And when it's made, I think it, you know, it's, it, it's lightning, like it, it, it lightens a burden that I think a lot of people go through life and work feeling like everything's going wrong instead of looking at the everything's going wrong going, is there something wrong with the system or is the thing that's going wrong actually the opportunity being put right in front of me to make something better instead? Yeah, the obstacle is the way. Yeah. So let's talk about, I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about the choices around the physical book and like what that experience was like. So what, what was the process there? And this is, this is somewhat selfish for me because I'm exploring the idea of doing an actual print book. I've got a bunch of self-published eBooks, but I have one coming that would make more sense as a physical book. And I'm sure there are listeners who have explored the same ideas. What was that experience like with you? What can you tell us about, you know, surprises or, Oh, it was brutal. It was easy. Yeah. So I had a pretty strong feeling from the beginning of thinking that this could be a book, that a physical book would be especially meaningful for this product, given that it is this very short thing that I really want folks to come back to often. So it being visible and whether it's, you know, on your desk or on your coffee table or on your bookshelf that it's something you're going to see and be reminded of. I love what e- the power of the ebooks have in terms of distribution and not having to transport them when you move. <laughs> but <laughs> but a physical book takes up space. And having a physical book in your space is going to I think it informs the meaning of the book. And not necessarily the words themselves, obviously, but I think you have a different relationship with words on a printed page than you do on a digital one. It's a book of prompts, and the physical nature of it is itself a prompt. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So 
that was sort of a big part of the driving piece of the decision. The other thing is, is we have a couple of really successful ebooks as well. Amy's got her her book around starting and finishing projects, just fucking ship. Mm-hmm. And that's yeah. sold over 10,000, almost 15,000 copies, I think, in its lifetime. And we've talked a bunch of times about what it would be like to have a printed version of that. And so I also saw this as a opportunity for me to like work out the kinks of the process, learn how it goes. Right. And if it goes well, now we have the, the stack of tools and knowledge to publish another printed book. Mm-hmm. So once I knew we were heading this direction, I reached out to a designer, my friend Hannah. One of my favorite conversations that we had about the actual design design of the book was when we started looking at covers. And she asked me, you know, what kinds of books are you inspired by? Is there a kind of book that you would like the cover of this one? You know, if they were sitting on a bookshelf next to each other, what what, what do you think would be complimentary? And in my head, I had this sort of duality of a very classic business book because so much of the stuff is learned from timeless business books, things like Dale Carnegie and Stephen Covey and and so on and so forth. And if you look at all of their books on Google Images, they all look kind of like each other. (laughs) They have a very certain kind of, you know, font choice and color style and things like that. And so I was interested in kind of leaning that direction, but also because because I'm me and because uh, stacking the bricks and because this is sort of meant to buck a trend in business, I, I almost thought maybe it would be fun to be almost like a parody of that. Okay. And so I was yeah. like, how to win friends and influence people except the opposite. And she's like, okay. <laughs> um, but funny. somehow found a way to, to really kind of embody that where the color, the topography and the styling both inside and out very much a nod, more more of a like a send up than a than a parody in in a lot of ways. And you know, people have, have responded really, really well. The other thing was I knew that I wanted to avoid relying on Amazon for a variety of reasons. Oh we, biggest... yeah, we gotta go there. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So I'm I'm very anti Amazon. So I have presumably all of the same concerns about Amazon and just putting more money into those pockets. And so that's a good reason on its own to not work with Amazon. The other very, very critical piece, and this isn't, I think a lot of folks don't realize when you self-publish with Amazon, is when you're using Amazon's print-on-demand fulfillment, those customers are not your customers. Mm-hmm. They are Amazon's customers. That might sound like splitting hairs, but the important piece here is that means that you don't own that customer relationship you can't do customer support if something goes wrong to handle things the way you want to handle them. You know, some people view that as an advantage. For me, I see that as a liability. If something goes wrong, Amazon's going to handle it the way Amazon wants to handle it, which may not be what I want to do. And we actually ran into a, a very specific situation where even though we didn't do the print on demand with Amazon, I thought it might be useful to do Kindle, but to go directly into the Amazon marketplace with a Kindle version, I was like, all right, so... The devil I know. (laughs) I know what the trade-offs are. And for me, the reason to even consider the Kindle version was 
we care a lot about getting this book in a lot of people's hands. This is, again, first principles, and it might be somebody's first introduction to thinking about business this way. Right. So for us to bring our audience to Amazon and then Amazon be a force multiplier through its recommendations algorithm and the leaderboard, which, by the way, worked. But without getting too far into the weeds, we had an issue on launch day where a non-trivial percentage of our customers went to get the book on their Kindle Paperwhite, and it got an error that said the book is not available on this device. The reasons for that are a more complicated story that doesn't really matter in the grand scheme of things. The thing that really matters is that the Amazon's answer to that problem was if the customers want to contact us and request a refund, we'll issue a refund. But other than that, we're not doing anything. And that was the moment where I decided to pull the book off of Amazon, even though we had sold hundreds of copies on Amazon already and had the potential to sell who knows, thousands, tens of thousands more. Mm. But to know that if something goes wrong, Amazon's answer is going to be, we're not doing anything about it. That That's not okay for me. So that's the short version of the, the Kindle story. The good news is that there are now some very good alternatives to Amazon's print on demand. So I found a company called Lulu that yep. has been around for a while. And yep. Lulu has an entire sort of author platform geared towards self-published authors where you can do everything from upload your files, hire an editor, hire a designer. Like you could come in with a basic manuscript and hire all of the work out through Lulu. Lulu's sort of like publisher for hire. Mm-hmm. And that includes having infrastructure to put your book on Amazon, put your book into the Ingram catalog so it can show up in bookstores and things like that. But what I found along the way is that under the hood, Lulu has effectively an API. So their software is able to be connected to other software. And they actually have a separate service called Lulu Express that is free to sign up for and has a Shopify plugin. And then you install that Shopify plugin into a Shopify store and it basically lets you treat your book like a digital product right up until the moment that somebody clicks order and then it packages up all the order information and ships it over to Lulu and Lulu handles everything. They print the book on demand, they package it, they ship it to your customer and here's the beautiful part is is their system is based on distribution centers, printing facilities around the world. So if you order a book in the U.S., it's going to come from one of, I think, two or three shipping locations closest to you to cut down on shipping costs and carbon footprint. But now expand that to a global situation where people are ordering books in Europe and in Asia and in Australia and New Zealand and literally every continent at this point, their system automatically has the book produced in the places that is closest to the customer, which means that I can do international shipping for under eight bucks to anywhere in the world, Wow! which is amazing. On top of all of this, and this is the most glowing review of any product or service I think I've ever used, is their customer service has been incredible, which is such a a contrast to what I experienced with Amazon. They've helped us work out technical issues. Like it's not been without glitches, you know, things are gonna go wrong, but everything that has gone wrong in the Lulu production side of the stack, I've been so impressed with how they handle things. And for that to be matched with print quality that if you did not know this was print on demand, you certainly wouldn't guess it. It's like a million things to think about. Lulu made it all so easy to say, look, if all this thing does is sell you know, a few dozen copies, I mean, I'll be bummed and we'll have lost money, but at least I don't have a case of 
books in my basement. Yeah. I mean, to me, yeah, Shopify is like Amazon for control freaks. So <laughs> that's great. You're totally right. Yeah. Yeah. Which I am. So <laughs> same. Yeah. Cool. All right. So uh, I'm just curious. The, the the format of the book is non-standard, right? Like that's not a standard format, right? Are you talking about the print size? Just the size. Yeah. Yeah. So the print size is one of the built-in options for Lulu. It was actually one of really? the reasons that we chose Lulu over... There was like two other options, and I, I, I'm honestly blanking out on their names. Lulu came out ahead for a bunch of reasons, but one of the, the – I was glad to be able to choose them because of their print format options. They do they do a bunch of other things too. They do like 12-month calendars. Like you could upload a bunch of photos and do calendars. Yep. They do comic books, which is really cool, or coloring books. And then this is their – they call it – it's a pocket book. And it is a standard size for them. I couldn't find it anywhere else. But yeah, as soon as I saw those dimensions on the website, and then when we ordered the proof, I was like, this is perfect. I couldn't have come up with these dimensions on my own and had them be better. Yeah. Yeah. I'm surprised it's not custom. Oh, that's great. Yeah. I'm, I'm aware of Lulu. Blurb is another one. Um, mm-hmm. But now that now this like, uh, glowing review, I think Lulu is the obvious one for me. And they, they do a nice job of providing you with sort of a full toolkit of preparing the book. And you download a, a template file that shows you your edges and your bleed and stuff like that. And I will say that it's print on demand, so things might not line up perfectly every single time. Mm-hmm. It's not manufacturing precision, right. but they're, it's still remarkably good. So, you know, the first time we did it, there was, you know, the spine was off by... I don't know, an eighth of an inch. Mm -hmm. And so we just adjusted the design so that even if it's off by an eighth of an inch, it doesn't look bad. I think you have to go into it with those kinds of considerations and do the testing. And if you do that, you end up with a product that, like I said, we've now shipped... We, one of the things that's been surprising to me is we've actually shipped more print books than any other format. Hmm. I was expecting print to be in some version of the minority, but we've shipped close to 2,000 print copies around the world already. And it's just it's been less than three months. And wow. the to see them show up with consistent quality wherever people are receiving them in the world, that was a concern that I had, knowing that they had this sort of like distributed facility thing. What's quality control going to be like? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And like, you know, my US based ones might be really awesome, but when they get shipped from somewhere, I think like their main warehouse is in Australia that serves a lot of Southeast Asia. Something gets shipped from there. Is it going to look as good? Is the quality going to be as good? And getting pictures from folks around the world holding a copy of the book by the way is the coolest (laughs) experience but also to see that the quality is consistent with lulu expresses has been really great that's cool well good to know i hope they keep it up (laughs) yeah me too excellent so i mean this is not your first time uh, at the rodeo in terms of, of releasing a product or doing marketing or anything like that so was there anything about this particular experience? Is this your first physical product? I yeah. Know. I mean, I think, you know, I think the fact that we could treat it like a digital product right up until the last moment eased a lot of my concerns. I think what was interesting is we did a pre-order of a physical product and then did this print-on-demand fulfillment, which is, I think, a kind of unusual combo. Normally, people do a pre-order so they can do a big batch order and then ship them out. But in order to do that with Lulu, I would lose the ability to sort of ship individual books to to right. folks. So, so we did the pre-order essentially inside Shopify. And then about a week before release, submitted all of those orders up until that day in one big batch. Mm-hmm. 
And so what was interesting about that is because we had that big batch of books get submitted early on, we kind of got to see what all of the kinks look like in the first couple <laughs> of weeks because it was sort of like stress testing. Obviously, the Lulu system was fine. We're, we're a blip on their radar. Right. But you start seeing you know, the ways that things get lost in the mail, the way that the person doing the packing in the warehouse grabs a giant box instead of a tiny envelope because that's what was closest or they ran out of things. <laughs> like it, within a few weeks, I saw several of the weird things that I could come to expect later on. And I feel like learning that lesson early on is kind of soothing because mm. we got through it and we have had no refund requests from, from the print books and and really only one refund request from somebody who I think thought they were getting an actual MBA for $7.99. <laughs> and, you know, you can't make everyone happy. <laughs> but other than that, like... Hey, that's a lot of money. People, yeah, I know. I mean, for in some parts of the world, like well, I know, I you do, know, but... West Virginia, um, <laughs> it's uh, whatever it was. Anyway, that was I, you know what I, I mean. The, you know, the lesson there is the is is the lesson in all cases. Like that person's clearly having a really challenging day, right? And it's got nothing to do with me. And I refunded their money, and I, I said, I hope your day gets better, and that's it. <sighs> so yeah, I mean, I think. I, I learned a lot in this. It was really, really fun. The experience, the way people respond to a physical book is is different from a, a digital book as well. You know, I mentioned before people taking pictures of it when it arrives is a thing that I've never experienced before. And it's cool and it's great marketing. Mm -hmm. The The number of people who recommended the book along with a photo of it or just recommended the book at all publicly i th i think was different with a physical book than with a digital one yeah uh, there's, there's more of a relationship there yeah it's you know given that the barrier to be able to do it is lower than ever before to produce something really great if you've ever done a digital book i would encourage you to to try a, a print one this is my my two thumbs up is this is worth doing it's a really mm. great experience the other thing is once you get a taste for for the physical book, it also, I think it just, it opens up some interesting doors to start just thinking a little bit differently. So we've had a lot of success with obviously marketing the books in the past, but I've never had somebody reach out and go, can I buy copies of this as a gift without us prompting <laughs> the idea? Yes. And because physical books make great gifts and people love giving physical books as gifts. If you make your book into a physical book, I think it's more likely to be gifted, which in terms of a multiplier effect on your book being in the world and helping people, I think that's a, a unique advantage of a physical book over a digital book. It can also be, it's more likely to be, you know, shared. You know, I read this book. It was really good. You can borrow my copy. Mm -hmm. It's technically easier to do that with a digital book, but I think people <laughs> are more likely to do it with a physical book. Uh, isn't that funny? I, I agree. The other thing that we did that was, uh, I mentioned our pre-order I tried something new. Before I let our list know, I let folks know in our more active watering holes. So, you know, chat rooms and forums and places like Indie Hackers where a lot of our audience hangs out and said, hey, we're working on something new. If you want to be one of the first people to get on the pre-order list, send an email to a separate inbox that I could tag all the people that were writing into that address and have a extremely warm list of launch day waiting list leads. Mm -hmm. And what was interesting is I, I borrowed this idea from when the crew at 37 Signals launched their email service, Hey, mm -hmm. 
Yep. And instead of having an email capture form, they said, send us an email to iwant at hey.com and tell us about whether you love or hate email. And I was like, that's so smart because you're getting their email address because they want the product, but you're also getting them to talk to you about what they like about email, what they hate about email. But you get their language, you get their emotions, and people are emotional about email. So <laughs> I was like, this is this is brilliant. And I thought maybe I can do something similar to that launching the tiny MBA. And so what I took with those over the course of, I don't know, about two weeks, I, I got about 300 people to write in to be on the pre-order list. And many of them wrote more than just, I want the book. They wrote a friendly note, something just <laughs> motivating. Like, I'm so excited. I love the podcast or I love the other products that you've done or I just love your art, whatever it is, like just affirmation, which that is really valuable for motivation. And then sometimes it was questions. I'm getting people asking like, well, you know, what is this going to be like? And then I have the ability to answer a specific person and kind of work out that language before I'm writing my sales page. Right. Super yeah. valuable yeah. as a practice. And then uh, on when it became time to actually start taking pre-orders, before I sent an email to our list and before I even tweeted about it, I, I manually sent an email in reply to each of those 300 and it was like 320 people where the bulk of it was a copy paste like, hey, it's launch day. Here's, you, you know, you can come get the book now. Mm -hmm. The opening line or two, if it was someone that I knew personally or knew anything about, it was a, a personal reply before I shared the sort of copy paste part. But remember, I thought about importing all those email addresses into ConvertKit and sending it as a blast. And I was right. like, wait a second. They sent me an email with a subject line that they wrote that I can reply to. Right. Mm -hmm. So when I, when I reply, I'm going to skip the marketing filters. I'm going to skip the spam filters. It's going to show up reminding them of an email they wrote me, which Gmail or whatever is going to prioritize. And that process of replying to an email that they sent me, I saw the fastest rate of conversion, not just the highest rate, not like the percentage of people who I emailed bought the book, but literally within... 45 seconds of getting the email, an order came through. It was unreal. So again, I'd put that in the, I'm not sure exactly what parts of that are replicatable, but you sure know I'm going to study that. Mm -hmm. We're going to experiment some more and see what is translatable into other launches. But I think the idea of building a pre-order launch list that is a combination of people who you know already have bought things from you and are already on your list and things like that, I think a lot of business folks know that mechanism. But the idea of doing it with a an actual inbox where people can write you an email and then you can reply to that when launch day comes is something that takes a bit of extra effort so a lot of people won't do it or they'll try to automate it and they'll ruin the experience along the way yeah the truth is is it took me about an hour a day across three days each so a total of three hours to respond to all of those emails mm -hmm. and the momentum that that generated i view, didn't view that as a sales tool so much as a momentum generating tool right because those people are the most excited to buy, and they're the ones who, after they buy, they're going to tweet about it. They're going to post to Facebook. They're going to post to LinkedIn. They're going to tell their friends without me even asking. And if I even nudge them in that direction, it's more of a sure deal. So I, it was sort of like winding up the for for the or like winding up is the batter before the ball's even there, mm -hmm. so that I've got the most potential energy stored up, so that the swing can be as as strong. And, and and the follow through can be as 
far reaching as possible. Yeah, I think there's a lot to that. You know, if you sign up for something on my site, you know, the thank you page used to, I don't even remember, had like a discount for my book or something like that. And I now what it does after somebody subscribes for like a free list or something, it asks them a question on the page and has just a clickable email of my real email. And I don't know, but I get the sense that there's two benefits to doing that. One is that, like you said, it's their subject line in their terms and they really brain dump like the people that that do that they really brain dump it's very personal and and i imagine that that is since it's not something i automated and people are frankly gobsmacked half the time when i email them back and they're like this isn't an automation and so i think there's a a, a trust building relationship building thing that happens there like i care about like i ask because i care like i want to know and i think that's good but i also wonder if there's not like you said some prioritization in the deliverability if the person has initiated an email to you before Drip ever sends them anything. Yeah, I, so, I'm fairly certain that if not a prioritization in the technical sense, I think there's a prioritization in the person's mind. For sure. When when you, you show up as a known sender versus whatever, you know, sent as generic something, even if it says <laughs> Jonathan Stark or Alex Holman or Amy Hoy or whatever it is. I think the thing is like the thing with email automation, and I'm a huge fan of email automation, by the way. Mm-hmm. I think the problem with a lot of email automation is the emails are written for automation, and so they feel like automation. Right. And I think you know what you what you're doing in, in one of the lessons in the tiny MBA is to Flintstone stuff, and it's it's a slightly different variation of doing things that don't scale. It's it's very intentionally doing things that don't scale for a very specific reason. Right. Now, that makes me think of there was something you had tweeted out. Or you actually replied to something I was tweeting about how bad I am at SEO. Oh. And, and you said, SEO only matters if you're just one of many. If you're the one and only, SEO is irrelevant. And so I'm, I'm made me I mean, hearing you describe what you're describing now makes me think about like what are the things that you can do that 99.9% of people aren't going to do that make you stand out? Is that connected to this idea in any way, or is there is there more to it? That's a, I'm glad you brought that up because I, I I haven't really talked about it publicly much. And I have friends who are great at SEO, and for a lot of businesses, it's like a huge portion of their income. But that tweet and that thought or that feeling of mine or belief is predicated on a notion that you're like someone who creates, you're a creator, you're not a big giant company, you're just putting out valuable stuff into the world. Most of my students are are some kind of service provider, probably half of them are, you know, solo or small firm software developers, but I've got quite a few copywriters and even some photographers and lawyers and architects and things like that. But they're small firms or soloists who are an expert at some profession. And if somebody's out there searching for an architect, you've already lost. Like you should do the work so that they search for Alex Hillman. Yeah. You know, you don't want them to search for a co-working space. You want them to search for Indie Hall. And it's very easy to own the search engine rankings for your name. You know, I suppose there are some names that are exceptions to that. But in general, I mean, like 90% of the search traffic to my site is for my name. So, like, I don't need to do SEO. I need to be famous. That's all. So, <laughs> you know, get famous. And, which is, I mean, famous for the for the people for whom we are famous means we're known as the people who helped them with a thing or can help them with a thing. Mm-hmm. And so what you just said is so interesting because it actually really ties back to what prompted my original tweet was somebody was just testing out a HREFs 
where you can put in your domain and it tells you what you rank for and stuff like that. And I was mm-hmm. like, wow, the first 30 things we rank for are so stupid. It's like, uh, it's a lot of stacking the bricks in our own name and then other things like, you know, shut up and take my money and kick in the ass and <laughs> just like other things that are, a lot of them are Amy Hoyisms. Um, right. But <laughs> what's reinforcing to your point, Jonathan, I think is so critical is I looked at those first 15 or 20 things that we rank for being like, all we rank for is our own name. I'm so bad at SEO. And what you turned it around and said, and this is honestly the best answer that I got from anyone that I talked to about this is that's actually great because people are searching stacking the bricks. If people weren't searching stacking the bricks, that would be a problem. But for us to have a business sustaining amount of traffic coming from people actively searching us out, we own a category that we we exist in, mm-hmm. which is not the same as creating a new business category, but it's the difference between being known as a person who does a thing versus the person who does this thing really well. Exactly. The go-to person for something. And usually when I say get famous, I'm talking about being a big fish in a small pond. Like, yeah. like we're not talking about Kardashian famous. Like you just need to <laughs> be famous. Thank <laughs> Too much surgery involved. The, the, <laughs> all you have to do is get all you have to do. Like it's easy, but it's not complicated. E- easy and simple are two different things. It's, it's simple conceptually to pick a group of people. Nobody wants to do that, but you should pick a group of people who you want to help. However you segment that population, demographic, psychographic, uh, whatever vertical, it doesn't matter. Just pick a segment of people who you're very well suited to help. Like you were saying earlier, like pick a superpower and say, Hey, who do I want to help with my superpower? And then find their expensive problems and say, Hey, I can solve your expensive problems. And those birds of a feather are going to be hanging around in places online. I mean, this is singing your song, like sales safari, find out what their pains are and become well-known. How do you become well-known to that group? You go there and help them and you do it for free as much as you can. Like help people for free in the small pond as much as you can at scale. So, you know, for me, it's a daily mailing list. It's a bunch of free stuff, tons of podcasts. I answer questions in Slack rooms all over the place and and it's all revolves around a central theme. It's all around ditching hourly. Like that's the central theme. Stop trading time for money because you'll never get anywhere doing that. And so I become known as the ditching hourly guy. Even if people don't search for my name, like if you search for the ditching hourly guy, the first five pages of results are me. Yeah. So it's like, so SEO to me, like I don't think SEO is irrelevant to everyone. Like I'm not trying to say that. Like if you, if you're a locksmith, you better damn well have good SEO. But it's a pure positioning play, like position yourself as something laser focused that people care about and help them get what they want. And they're going to remember you. Everything you just described happens to be one of my favorite lessons in the tiny MBA, which is (laughs) that audience building and self-promotion often get conflated with the worst aspects of self-promotion that people are overexposed to. And therefore they don't want to do those. They don't want to be bad self-promoters, but they think that all self-promoting is bad self-promotion when in fact, the way I reframe it is that audience, if people thought of audience building as earning trust at scale, everything you just described, doing it in a sustained and durable way, building systems around it, whether those systems are a combination of automation or just your own in, uh, you know, sustainable processes, yeah, checklists, whatever, whatever Mm -hmm. it is, 
helping people at scale is the most reliable path to audience building for the average person who doesn't have built-in advantages of, you know, being a Kardashian or something <laughs> like that. Like, it's a different kind of fame. And in, fa- in fact, I think it's, in a lot of ways, not only is it attainable, I think it's it's br- more broadly useful. One of the ways that we talk about it w- within 30 by 500 is, if you have the ability to get paid hourly to do a skill, which is, again, where most people start, but they want to get out of, mm-hmm. then one of the best things you can do is start looking for ways to show other people that you're good at that skill. And that means helping people in public so that people know that you're good at that skill so they could consider working with you in other capacities. Once you have the audience and and even a very small audience, you can start getting more creative and away from the hourly billing and into packages or productized services or or full on into products and platforms. Yeah. Hundred percent. Yeah, I mean, we are all thoroughly on the same page. We're, we're on the all same that page. Stuff. Yeah. yeah, it's it's cool to hear. It's always fun and and genuinely great to spend time with people who were on the same page with that about because again going back to sort of why the tiny mba exists and why all the stack in the brick stuff exists and it sounds like why all of your stuff exists is because I'm thinking about your your cow path analogy. I think it's right. a really good one where it's like. People want this. And I think 2020, we're recording now in in the middle of October 2020, there are way more people that wouldn't have considered some version of entrepreneurship and now are being forced into it because the job market has been obliterated by the pandemic and all kinds of things happening in the economy. I look back at all the things entrepreneurial that happened after the, the 07, 08 crash and you know, I don't want bad things to happen to anybody, but I get excited about the potential for people to be looking at entrepreneurship now through a new lens. It's unfortunate that the cause of that being now might be an act of desperation. Yeah. But if we can be there, people like you and me and the folks who listen to your show and the folks who read our stuff, if we can be there with them, I think there's the potential for a new generation of entrepreneurs that looks very different from the generation of entrepreneurs that's gotten the most media and press over the last decade and change. And I think that's a really good thing. Hallelujah. Yes, absolutely. That's the long game for you and I, Jonathan, and I'm glad we're on playing the same game and on the same team. Same team, exactly. If you enjoyed that episode, and I hope you did, I've got a couple of quick things before you go. The first, of course, is making sure that you have your very own copy of The Tiny MBA. If you haven't ordered it, I'd love it if you did, and you can grab a paperback or ebook at tiny.mba. I also hope you're subscribed to this show. We're going to be releasing more episodes like this one with other creators and entrepreneurs just like you, and I'm going to be talking with them about their favorite lessons in the Tiny MBA, learning what's going on in their world, and sharing it all with you. So you can search for that by looking for Stacking the Bricks wherever you get podcasts. And one last thing, check out the Stacking the Bricks website. We've got a great newsletter with new articles coming out every week or two, following on a lot of the same topics and themes that we talk about right here on the show. You can do that by going to stackingthebricks.com. I hope you have a great rest of your day, and don't forget to keep on stacking those bricks.